The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. We'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people's, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees, and laws I give you today. Our reading from the New Testament today is John chapter 6, verses 36 through 46. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can we now say I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. And thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Sarah. Can we just be still just for a moment? That might mean you might want to close your eyes or look at your shoes just for a moment. I just want us to be able to be present for this text. Um, it's a really powerful um, points that I'd love to make in just a few moments, but let's just be still for a second. All right, well, thank you guys. Um, just a quick memory remembrance moment, because some of you, this is your first time hearing our series in John, but this is the 14th week we've been in John, so you might feel like there's information that you wish you had so that we can understand context. So let me give you a couple of quick points that I think will catch you up really fast. John chapter 20, which is not, we haven't even gotten to that teaching yet. We've referenced it nearly every week. We have it on a slide for you that I want you to be able to see this. But in John chapter 20, John is saying at the end of his letter, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, who which John was one of them, which are not written in this book, 
but these are written, but the ones that are written, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let me just ask, if John is summarizing his letter, what is his goal of everything and every word that he's placed in this letter for you and I and the right people that he was listening to or writing to that day? Somebody be bold enough, just call it out. Yeah, to prove that he's the Messiah, which is a word that has deep meaning. So what else does this verse tell us is the point of his letter? Like, to have life in Christ. Somebody else said something in this area that we believe, right? So his goal is that we would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that we would have life in that. Not that someday we would experience life, but there was a present tense. I want you guys to feel this. Because many of us in this room, myself included, we've had, if we just went back to the last seven days of time that we've had, many of us don't feel much life. We've lived, but generally when somebody says that you felt life, it generally is more of a, almost like an endorphin filled, like I am just pumped up and excited about my day and I am looking forward to waking up in the morning. I am looking forward to pushing through my day and accomplishing something. Life means that there is a sense of joy and passion, even if the work is hard or there's something that we might have to push through. But when we are alive, we are not depressed and discouraged and, and, and sad, even though we might feel feel the pressures of life. And so what John is saying here is, look, in Jesus, there is life. In this passage, he throws in the word eternal, which is John 6. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So there's John in his letter is making it very clear to us that there's a present tense set of, of, of things that we need to be aware of through John's testimony and his writing that is going to reveal what it looks like for us to have a life that then continues on past death. So he's now adding into this scripture that there is something even special beyond what we even know to be seen and to be heard and to, to experience, right? So John's getting to that. And the other thing that I think is important for all of you that are just stepping into this passage is that nothing in John's gospel is in it by accident, Many of you are in specific studies right now. Many of you have been through it. You're in your first real jobs or outside of college, and you're paying back your student loans and all the things that are stressing you and moving you forward. There's a lot of us in that situation. I want you guys to understand that much like the, the teachers that strategically decided this is what a freshman needs to know, that a sophomore can need to know, and that a junior needs to know, and that a senior needs to know, and then a graduate student needs to know, and a doctor. Like, there are people that have been strategic of stacking information so that you can get to the place where you either are today or where you're soon going to be. There's been that much intentional thought behind the curriculum and the program that you've stepped into. John has been just as strategic in looking back at his experiences with Jesus and saying, I am going to, the, with the power of the Holy Spirit that's with me, put together a strategic stream of thoughts. I'm going to start out in the beginning of the letter, actually labeling the signs. But as you get more mature and follow along, I'm going to drop the labels and let you find them so that you can then begin to take more and more ownership of the information that's in this letter. So by the end, you believe 
And you're not only believing, you're tasting of an abundant life that is going to then live on with you for eternity. And so this is the intent of John. And this is why our leadership of our church and why our churches have been teaching through this particular letter is because either you are not yet aware of how much God loves you or you believe that God loves you and now you're trying to figure out what does life look like that I believe. That's really the only two situations that we're finding ourselves in. There might be a small gap of some of you in the middle that like, do I believe, do I not believe? And you're like kind of caught in like the gray area of like, I think I believe, but then maybe I don't believe. And, and so, but that's probably a smaller group than those of you that are in here that are like, I definitely don't and I definitely do. And so if I am going to be a, a good shepherd caretaker of us today, I want to make sure that those of you that believe, that those of you that truly do believe in Christ, that you are empowered to live that life as a representative of Jesus in this world. And those of you that yet don't believe, I want you to become overwhelmed by what this passage says to you. Because there are a group of people here that are getting ready to be told the truth. And in that, there's an invitation. And so hopefully I can do a good job of talking about that today. So when a pastor doesn't know what to say to its church, he always quotes C.S. Lewis, all right? <clears throat> so anytime you're in a public setting and a pastor is struggling to know how to really get the point across, we go to the one that always got the point across in uh, recent generations, and, um, and C.S. Lewis is that one. And I came across an interview that C.S. Lewis had with an American Christian journalist who was writing about well-known personalities that had made a decision to follow Jesus later in life as an adult. So he wasn't looking for people that grew up in Sunday school, going to church, and coming to know Jesus as a six, seven, or eight-year-old. This journalist was looking for adults that were full-on in their adult life, in their careers, that had their full cognitive abilities available to them, that most likely had degrees and were writers and authors and had a world-renowned name in some level. And C.S. Lewis hit this interviewers list. And the theme of the article was the word decision. And so he wanted to get C.S. Lewis to say how he had made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. How many of you have ever been asked this question very similar to that? Would you just show me a quick hand? There's a few of you. It depends on denominations, like places that you've been discipled or taught. Some of them come to you and say, so tell me about when you made the decision to follow Jesus Christ. I've had that mentioned to me on numerous occasions. But unfortunately for this poor writer, he was interviewing C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis wasn't going to be caught up in just the simplicities. He obviously, in some level, wanted to speak the truth and wanted to um, teach something to this journalist. So unfortunately for this project, C.S. Lewis refused to put into those terms the word, I made a decision. He said... God closed in on him and he couldn't escape because he didn't want to believe. If you, you can find this more in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, because in Surprised by Joy, he actually uses the phrase, his, talking about God, the Father, compulsion is our liberation. So he's saying that basically God overwhelmed him and he had no, desire, he had no choice but to say, I believe. 
And I don't know if any of you have ever had a moment in some form of your life where something in your life was so good, so sweet, so powerful that you just couldn't deny it. And I believe that somebody like C.S. Lewis began to understand what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 6 in a way that I believe is, number one, accurate to what Jesus is saying. And number two is something that I believe is true, that there's not a one of us in here that chooses Jesus, but there is everyone in this room that has been chosen by Jesus. The issue now is, is do we believe it? Do you and I believe that we are been overwhelmed by God, that he's pursued us in such a way that we can't help but to say, I get it, you love me. I feel your pursuit. Like there's, it might be something that actually you feel in your heart. That it's like you, I can't explain it, but there's something going on inside of me, and it, it just, it's just saying to me that God loves me. And so Jesus is beginning to talk about this with this audience. But here's here's the thing: the audience is Jewish. And so for most of us in this room, and I've said this several times through the letter, and you will know it redundantly as we finish the next 14 weeks of this book, we are going to find ourselves where we don't get the clues because we don't understand what we're looking for. But one of the common teaching traits in the Jewish world by a rabbi is to quote one sentence or one phrase out of a prophet or an Old Testament, what we would call Old Testament, to them it was their scriptures, and they would just say one phrase so that the people in the audience that knew the phrase would be like, that's where this is coming from. And they would then know, oh, he's talking about the letter from Isaiah. Because they didn't have their letters broken down like we do with chapters and verses. So it wasn't like Jesus could just step up to the hillside and say, open the scroll to Isaiah 51. Like he couldn't just do that because there were no chapters and verses. He would just say, you remember when the prophet said? And then they would all know the reference because that was their form of education as a child. They learned to read, reading the scriptures. They learned to do math according to the scriptures. Everything that they had in their education as a Jewish child was in reference to the scriptures. So most children leading up to 18 years of age already had elaborate passages of scripture almost entirely memorized because that was the way that they were learning. And so recall was a part of the Jewish teaching strategy. Let me just say this, and then it's going to reference this entire thought. And so that's happening redundantly in this scripture. But the audience had begun to shift in their thinking, especially some of the religious leaders here that did not understand fully what God was doing with them. And one of the hard lessons, this is on a slide for you, one of the hard lessons the children of Israel had to learn in the wilderness was that their God, Yahweh, was not at their beck and call. Let me just explain this to you. Um, imagine yourself sitting poolside and being like, excuse me, could you please bring me something to drink? Or like in my favorite establishment. Um, excuse, um, excuse me, um, could you please put some more sweet tea in this and just a little ice? And then the response from the person walking by in a red shirt is, my pleasure, <laughs> right? That's what they all say to you. Like, you know that's not their pleasure. <laughs> They're doing it for 10 bucks an hour. They're not doing it for pleasure. They've just been indoctrinated into the mindset of customer service, the Chick-fil-A way, right? And so 
Most of us, when we are overconfident in our standing, begin to shift who's serving who. We see it in our politics, we see it in our families, we see it in our places of employment, and we definitely see it in our worship. Because too often what we end up finding is that we are sitting in an relaxed, relaxed posture and we're like, excuse me, as in, as like imagining Jesus coming by and saying, oh yeah, um, could you please do this for me? And the nation of Israel had somehow gotten to the point where they thought that God was like available to them in a way that even though they had these holiness laws, but their posture to him was, oh, he's for me, and so no matter what I do, he's going he's gonna to serve me. He's going to pursue, he's going to just be obliged to me. And I don't believe that is the point. And that's why I believe Jesus in John 6 is using so much Ill, Ill, like illustrations and visuals coming out of the children of Israel going from the slavery in Egypt to being moved out to the wilderness to be on their journey to the promised land. So much of chapter 6 is built around that Exodus story. There is nothing in them, and this is what I think is really important, is that even though they were a special people, they weren't chosen because they were a great nation. They weren't chosen for their population. They weren't chosen for their intellect. They weren't chosen for any statistical reason that says you're better than other races in humanity. It was solely something that God had chosen to do through them. And Jesus is now reminding them of important scriptures like was read in our opening, Deuteronomy 7. And like he's about ready to reference here out of Isaiah in just a few minutes. He's reminding them, do you understand that where you stand as you stand now, much like the exile story, had nothing to do with you? And this might seem a little bit difficult for many of us in here. But I'm the one standing in the room right now, and you're the one seated. And let me just say this. Whether we're sitting or we're standing, there's not a one of us in here that deserves for God to pursue us. We can always compare ourselves to more evil people. We really can. But there's not a person in this room that is so good that God counts it a privilege to be like, oh, wow, you're perfect too. I didn't realize there was another one in the universe like me. But we act like when we get into God's presence that we're equal. Now, again, I think part of it is, is because our religious instruction has helped us to be overconfident in areas that we should be humble. Because, because of Jesus... We are one with the Father, with the Son, with the Spirit. Because of Jesus, we are, according to what Paul told the church in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi, we are joint heirs with Jesus. Like everything Jesus gets, we're going to get and we have access to. Now, that could make our posture think that we are equal to him right now. But let me just tell you this. In this world, in this life, God is still perfect and we are imperfect. And Jesus is communicating to a bunch of people that somehow, even though their scriptures talked about the ways, like in Deuteronomy 7, that we are supposed to be pursuing God, we had somehow switched in our thinking that somehow God was to serve us. And we miss things, again, because we're not Jewish. Anytime Jesus uses a word like grumbling, 
It's specifically targeting the children of Israel in the exile story. But we miss that because it just sounds like a complete thought in a sentence. And so when the audience was sitting here hearing Jesus saying, you guys are grumbling, they would immediately be like, I cannot believe that he's comparing us to the children of Israel that were grumbling in the wilderness because God hadn't performed a miracle for them that day. Even though he just parted a Red Sea and he just supernaturally fed us, water came out of a rock. I mean, he didn't do something today. So why is he not? like? So they're sitting here thinking, why in the world? Would Jesus be taking these, this strong language of a grumbling spirit and then imposing it upon us? The people sitting there or standing there listening to Jesus, I believe, is the same type of thing that we need to come away with. But the emphasis that Jesus is saying to them is that God is the sovereign one. He's the one that sees. He's the one that knows. He's the one that is wise. He's the one that is sinless. He's the one that knows how to love. He's the one that knows what justice looks like, what mercy looks like. So the list could go on and on and on and on about the attributes of God. And he's saying to this people, there is nothing that is special in and of you other than the fact that God loves you. That's hard to hear. Because a lot of times we want to feel special. We want to act like as if we're special. And so therefore we come up with different standards of, well, I have a certain amount of education. I have a certain number of commas in my income. I have a certain standard of living. There's things that we go to that then separate us from other people so that we feel more special. But even Jesus said, yes, some of you are a one-talent person, and some of you are ten talents, and some of you are actually going to be a hundred-talent individual, but that doesn't mean that any of you are loved more or less. It's just the type of gifts that you were given. I'll be a good steward of your gifts. So I shouldn't be competing with somebody like a Warren Buffett or a Bill Gates or somebody that is working in the Silicon Valley that has two to three commas in their income. Because I wasn't designed to be a scientific mind to have research and breakthrough. I am a pastor. And that's just a different pathway. And I even am a pastor in a, not a prosperity gospel movement. So I don't have a jet or a yacht or a Rolls and a driver. Like, there are pastors that get that, but that's not even the pathway I'm on. Like, and so I'm sitting here thinking, God, how many talents do I really have? You know? So I can get distracted by the things that I don't have. Or I could say, God, I want to use what I do have, and I want to leverage it all for your glory and all of your honor. And so some of you are going to produce wealth. Others of you are going to produce sweat. And it's okay, because that's what God has asked us to do, because he's sovereign. He sees. He's wise. He knows. And if we trust him, we're going to find great access to him in a way that's going to be Beyond, actually, like John calls it, he's, you're going to feel alive now. You don't have to wait till you die to experience life eternal. You can have eternal life today. And so it goes on here. He's drawing um, language, like out of verse 44 and verse 37. He's, he, it seems that he is talking about that there is something in the secret places of the human heart where you know that Jesus loves you. Whether you believe it or not, you just know it's true. 
And so he's speaking to this audience, saying to them, look, I know some of you right now are just being overwhelmed by the fact that you feel chosen. Step into that and believe in me, and you will have life, and you will have it eternally. And Jesus says, thou shalt all be taught by God. It's a reference to Isaiah 53, 14. Um, you can look it up later. We, I think we might have it on a screen for you. But he's calling to mind one of the Old Testament greatest prophecies of the renewal that will come about through the great outpouring of their love. No. It's going to be a revival that comes from a great outpouring of God's love that's going to bring them back from exile. And the problem with the way that I'm teaching through the Gospel of John is it's so easy for us to only focus on the verses that we've set aside to discuss today and we forget the verses from last Sunday and we're losing, we don't even know about the verses that are coming next. But this entire chapter, Jesus is making reference to Isaiah, making reference to Isaiah, making reference to Isaiah over and over again. So the point for the audience is, do you know the story of Isaiah? Do you know what God was saying to them? And so my responsibility today is, how do I summarize the longest book of the Bible so that our gallery kids workers don't all resign today? (laughs) Isaiah 55 was referenced even last week. Everyone who is thirsty to come to the waters and drink freely because up with picking up with Jesus in verse 35, he is saying to all of you who are thirsty, there's water for you. So some of us may have come out of denominations where we're like, you know what, God's chosen and people don't have a choice. And so those that are chosen are gonna choose and those that don't choose are not gonna choose. I just feel like that Jesus is not saying that here. Because Jesus is saying anybody that is thirsty that wants to drink can drink. And when they drink, they're going to be taken care of forever. Doesn't mean they have to be perfect. They're not going to lose it. Once you get in with Jesus and you taste that water, it changes us. And it starts to work more and more change into us. And so as we begin to see this, the part of the point of Isaiah's passage is the complete helplessness of Israel at its time which then can be translated to you and I, is that we are completely helpless in our time. The problem is, is that most of us don't feel helpless. So therefore, we are not overwhelmed by the love of God because we feel quite fine. We are self-sufficient. We have good jobs, careers. We have electricity. We have housing. We have more food than we can do. And we even can take trips as abundantly as we want to. And so we don't feel this desperate need for God. That's why it's easy for us to become like the children of Israel and then just call out to God at our beckoning moments and treat him like he's an equal or less than an equal when actually he's holy and we're not. And so Jesus is addressing this and he's trying to get the religious leaders, even the other audience, to all see who he is clearly. So this passage introduces the term eternal life. I mentioned it just a minute ago. And so those who come to Jesus in faith are promised that he will raise them up on the last day. So what does this mean? Let me figure out a way of closing this briefly. Eternal life is our quality of life. I tried to make a case for it in the introduction, but eternal life here isn't just implied In Jesus' words, this is present tense language in this chapter. He's not saying you will experience eternal life someday. 
it's present tense. So there's something in this word eternal that means I can start it now. And there's something in this word that talks about it never ending. Both are equally true. Both are equally important. But many people get caught up on the fact that I can't have eternal life until this body of mine dies. And I heard this read recently, I heard this spoken once just recently, that God was the first one into recycling because he made our bodies to go from dust to dust. And when I think about that, I'm like, okay, that is true. But the guys at the beginning of the book lived a whole lot longer than we did. They got a lot more use out of their bottle before it was recycled than we do. But yet Jesus never talks about the fact that the way we live now and the way we'll live later have absolutely nothing to do with each other. So there's something to the shell of us that's important because he wants the sparrows to have food and he says he's equally concerned about us. And so we are in a situation where we are caught between feeling eternal like God but feeling temporary like a lot of things in the world, which is part of the place we were born or made in the creative order of the Genesis story. We were highly elevated. We were slightly elevated over the animals and the fish. We were given dominion over the earth, but yet we were made a little lower than the angels. And so there's a part of us that has this eternal longing, and then there's a part of us that feels very temporary, right? So we're caught in the tension of all of this, and that's what Jesus is speaking to here. And he's like, if you're not careful, you'll overthink who God is and who you are, and you'll miss life. You won't live. You won't live abundantly. You'll barely get by. And he's like, if we can see Christ, we will be able to live and we'll be able to live abundantly according to the things that God is doing. The eternal life that begins in the present when somebody believes and then that eternal life continues to the future beyond death will eventually be what John spends his time talking about around the time of the resurrection later in the letter but he already alluded to it in John chapter 5, which I'll encourage you to go back and read. But the entire story John is telling, and this is on a slide for you, is designed to end with Jesus pioneering the way into the newly embodied life. And the promise of the present chapter is that his life will be shared by all who taste of the living bread. I love the way that N.T. Wright said that. The entire story John is telling is designed to end with Jesus pioneering the way into this newly embodied life. And the promise of the present chapter is that this life will be shared by all who taste of the living bread. So this morning, if you've never tasted of the living bread, it's just as simple as me saying, God, I give up. I know you're pursuing me. I know you love me. That's tasting bread. That's experiencing water from a source that we've never drunk from before that brings life to us. Our prayer doesn't have to be any more elaborate than that. We can literally stop and just say, Father, thank you for loving me. I'm in. I don't know everything, but I know that I can just tell you're pursuing me. But then the rest of us that have had moments where we knew God was pursuing us, why are we counting ourselves equal to him? 
what is going on in our world? What are we saturating our mind with that is making us think that we are equal to the God or better than him, that we can tell him what to do? Because the people around us need to see our humble acceptance of a lavished love that we did not deserve, but we received. And then therefore the posture of our life is overflowing with fruits that taste sweet like compassion and mercy and justice and gentleness and kindness. Just read your last few Facebook posts and tell me what fruits are relevant there. Think about the last conversation with people in your home, your roommates, your workers. What fruits are remaining? Because it's very likely that even though we believe our eyes have gotten off of him as Lord and it has come onto us as Lord, and we're in real danger of then damaging people around us because they're saying, you claim Christ, but that doesn't smell like Jesus. It's definitely not sweet like the Jesus that I was thinking of. And so we're going to end right now with some songs um, of worship. And parents, I want to encourage you to go get your kids and bring them back down as a part of this time of worship and singing, as well as coming to the Lord's table. There are going to be people that are around the room that are able to pray with you. Do you need healing? Is there something physical, emotional? Is there something that, that has just been on you today and you know that you need prayer for? Please don't leave without receiving prayer. Others of us in here today, we should be energized in a way that we leave here saying, I have the privilege of joining in God's pursuit of other people. Do you understand that? We are a part of a mighty wave that is just wrapping its arms around people saying, God loves you. God loves you. We get to join into that pursuit because we believe, others will believe. And let's feel that excitement and that joy of being able to say to people, do you know what? God loves you no matter where you are, what you're doing, what you've done. He just loves you. And just keep telling people the truth that God loves them. And eventually they're just going to give up because they're going to be like C.S. Lewis. He just overcame me. Let's overcome some people this week in the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you stand as I pray? Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup. And we are now announcing it, Lord, because we want others to be welcome to the table. Lord, for my brothers and sisters that need healing, Father, touch them in the name of Jesus. For my brothers and sisters that need confidence restored, Father, bring them confidence. For those, Lord, that have lost their way, would you illuminate the path back? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.